The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 67 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, the podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Still working on a pitch for a Poison Elf spinoff book called Antidote Alchemist. I'm Adam. And stopping by the show tonight is an old friend who has left the life of podcasting behind to travel the country, filming television commercials and helping small town folks along the way, all the while searching for a cure to his gamma irradiated geekiness. You wouldn't like him when he's angry, but you might find him amusing when he's mildly annoyed. It's Steven Sapellis. Golly, Bob, howdy. <laughs> Glad to have you back, buddy. Good to be back. And good to be back with my good friend, Richie. Yeah, tell us about your friend that you brought along with you. So I've been trying to get Richie in the podcast for, I feel like, a year or more. But, you know, Richie's one of my oldest friends uh, we met in college. He's a couple years younger than me, and we initially bonded over our love of filmmaking. We were both film majors uh, at Hofstra, but it turned out that we quickly discovered we also love comic books. Uh, Richie is a Superman guy, right? Richie, if I had to peg you as one guy. That is correct. He even owned the Superman arcade game. Like I, uh, I spent most of my childhood playing that game, you know, beginning to end on repeat. So that's the Taito one with the red and blue Superman with the first player and second player. Oh, I love that one. Yep. He still owns it because uh, you sent me a picture not too long ago of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's 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 back at my childhood home after being in storage for a little while. <laughs> uh, so yeah, th through the years, Richie and, I, Richie and I have worked together on films. Uh, when I moved to LA, I stayed at, at the apartment that he had with his wife, Jess. He was very nice to let four of us uh, stay at his apartment. Uh, he's one of the most supportive people I know. Uh, when I was in every stage of production on, on my future UFO club, Richie was there. He's an accomplished filmmaker in his own right, having directed the horror thriller The Eve, which is now uh, recently streaming on Tubi. And to boot, he's a great dad, and every year his family has the best Halloween costumes, often comic book related. Uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy one was my favorite. But what I think is going to interest everyone most is that Richie worked on numerous feature films, including Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and of greatest interest to this podcast, Richie was there at the beginning of the MCU. He worked on Iron Man. Well, I mean, th this is major. Yeah, when you when you dropped that bomb on me, I was like, wow. I mean, who could have known? And we, we got to hear some of those details of how you ended up working on that project. But Richie, before we get going here, we want to get to know the young Richie, to the man who is just learning to love comic books. And so why don't you tell us your origin story? Oh, 
Okay, so uh, we open up on Long Island, New York <laughs> in the 1980s. So, no, but seriously. Uh, so my love of comics started with my dad, actually. So he had convinced me and my brothers that he was Superman. So he had a Superman costume. Occasionally he'd wear it around the house. And and, and when I was when I was like two and three, four, I thought my dad was the Superman. Like, I thought he was <laughs> Superman. Uh, so that's sort of where it started. But uh, that was more, you know, Superman and the the movies and everything. But my love of comics started when my cousin, who was uh, who was much older than me at the time, I was around four or five, and he came over our house uh, to hang out, and he gave me a random paper bag full of comics. It had maybe like six or seven comic books in it. These were all late 80s Marvel comics. So there was uh, an issue of Daredevil fighting Claw. There was Spider-Man against the Absorbing Man. My favorite of the bunch was a Power Pack issue featuring Wolverine, who I thought was the coolest character ever. The cover is like Sabretooth defeating the Power Pack and Wolverine's in the background running to to save the day. Uh, And, you know, cut to 25 years later and I have a son named Logan (laughs) But uh, so that's I mean, I read those issues over and over until they were like shredded pieces of paper that I had to tape together to continue uh, reading them. And then in the 90s, I used to go to Castle Comics in Long Island every Saturday. I would get a stack about this big, like, you know, a foot high stack of comics. (laughs) And uh, I, you know, I I picked up, you know, across the board, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, X-Men, Gen 13, Witchblade. Like, I just loved comics. Superman, as as Stephen mentioned, was my absolute favorite. And in the 90s, it was, you know, Superman had five ongoing titles and they had the triangle right. that connected it. So it was like, it was more of a weekly comic rather than a monthly comic. And I was just, for me, that was like my golden age of, of comics. Well, let me ask you this real quick, because we were recently just talking about the announcement of the blue energy-based Superman. And of course, upcoming will be the red Superman. So how did you feel about that changeover? So I I was upset when he cut his hair, because long-haired Superman is without a doubt my favorite look on the character. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And and the blue suit, like, it would have been okay if it was like a gimmick for a few issues i felt like it went too way too long like i didn't mind it i thought it was cool him learning how to use new powers and transforming between like a human version and the electric but it they dragged it on and then splitting in two was like okay we gotta we gotta put him back together and revert him back and maybe grow his hair long again yeah i i see what you're saying and we definitely got like a 50 50 response when we were posting about it on our social media half the people were like oh it was the stupidest idea obviously it was a gimmick people were like i was open to change because i i think they felt like the creative team we've had standard superman for so long we gotta freshen it up and i'm in that camp i just think it's a cool idea even though at the time i rejected it so it it was a really cool throwback to the silver age when they split them up though because they had done that with superman in the past where he had the the two versions like the red and blue version just you know (laughs) pre-electric 
Yeah, that that's very true. And I I had, you know, you just talked about the video game you had where that was featured. And when I played the video game, I had a comic book where it was one of those storylines where he split into the red and blue Superman. So I was just like, they adapted that comic I read when I was six. Everyone thought it was Captain Marvel in that game, Shazam. Like everyone <laughs> would play and they thought it was him. And I was like, no, it's just another version of Superman because we're both Superman. <laughs> that never even crossed my mind. That is fascinating. I always thought it was Shazam because I used to play at Adventureland on Long Island where they had it. And I was always like, oh, I get to be Shazam. This is so cool. Richie, can you share the story of who almost starred in one of your student films? Which uh, which one? It was your, uh, I guess that would have been your 47 film. My 47 film. Oh, I, I gotta go. You gotta, you gotta remind me. I gotta go. Back into it, the a the certain memory. Superman actor. Oh, Brandon. That that was the, yeah. So I, I at the time uh, while in college, I uh, I worked on on a soap opera that. So my my mom had uh, done hair on the soap opera for you know twenty plus years, and I I, I sort of grew up on the soap. So a lot of times when I was <laughs> doing uh, projects, I would be like, "Hey, actor on this soap." opera that's on national tv do you want to be in my no budget short film and shockingly like across the board they would say yes and i would make you know my student films and outside of uh film class films but one of them almost starred brandon routh who is such a nice guy just like one just so kind and I'm actually I'm hoping that I I can do a project and like, you know, send him an email or a letter, maybe because letters work and be like, hey, Brandon, you want to I don't I doubt you remember me, but you want to be in my uh, feature film that I'm making. That's awesome. Wow. Fantastic. Almost started Superman. Yeah. Wow, Way that's... before he was Superman, but it would have been cool to look back on. Would have been awesome. So let me ask you this, then. Would you say that reading comics and seeing essentially storyboards uh, for action, did that lead to your interest in film? And can you flash forward to how you ended up on the on the project of working on Iron Man? Yeah, definitely. So I was an artist. Well, I'm I'm still an artist, but just a, a different kind of artist. But I loved drawing, and like I would draw comics every day. I had I had my own original series when I was five. It was called Smasher. He it ran for fifty issues, and then a couple of years later relaunched into the new Smasher, which was his son. We just happened to name Smasher, and that ran for thirty issues. But I, I was just. Uh, I was all about comics, any like comic inspired movies, no matter how good or bad they were at the time. And I always like I always wanted to be a comic book artist. Now, as I got a little older, I started getting into video and making films. And I just so happened to be better at that. Like I was never the caliber of artist that you would need to be published by, you know, by Marvel or DC. And I knew that like I could, you know, I, I could see that even though I loved it, that just wasn't for me. So I took my storytelling in a slightly different direction. And then as chance would have it, they were making Iron Man. A friend of a friend knew someone who was working on the movie as they were staffing up. And I had been just sort of uh, freelancing, going from film to film, working some in the office, some on set. And they offered me a staff position on it. And I jumped for the chance. Like I, they didn't finish offering it to me. And I was like, where do I report? When do I report? Yeah. Just tell me where to go. Oh, you're paying me even better. And were you, as you saw it come together, were you pretty confident that they had gotten it right? Like in your mind, it was just like, yeah, they nailed it. 
so the tricky thing is when you're working on a movie, you're putting so much time and energy and effort into it. You always think it's going to be good. Like you're, you're, it's very rare that you're working on like a big movie like that. And you're like, you know, this is just not going to be good. So you, so you're putting all that time in. But uh, when I saw the suit for the first time, like when, when I walked in and saw the suit and I just, I, I stood there and I just stared at it. And I was like, this is Iron Man. I am so happy to like be in the same room as this. And then as chance would have it, that ended up being my job on the movie. I was assigned to the suit. I had to watch the suit. I had to guard the suit. So like Iron Man was Tony Stark's bodyguard. I was Iron Man's bodyguard because I had to <laughs> I had to keep the suit safe and protect it from the paparazzi and onlookers. And so every time we were filming with the suit, I was basically there with it. And it was just, it was an unreal experience. To say it was like a dream come true doesn't scratch the surface of it. I mean, we're excited that you got to guard the suit, but that means you met Dummy. Dummy is such a great robot. He's so lovable, that little arm. <laughs> yes, everyone, everyone loves that. And that's, you know, a, a puppeteer arm and it's fantastic. But uh, this, this I thought you might like, Adam. So yeah. were you there for the hype of Iron Man when we were making the film and when that was all happening? Oh, yeah. Like, I have an original, like, Comic-Con shirt with, like, the glow-in-the-dark uh, arc reactor in the center. And it says Iron Man. Like, yeah, I, I was excited for it. Awesome. Do you remember there was a leak online that went viral that was someone in the bushes filming the suit and then it sort of incorporated it into the movie? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, so on the long version of that, there is someone who's standing in front of the suit who sees the person in the bushes and calls on their radio like, <laughs> go get that person in the bushes. That was me. I I went wow. viral guarding the suit back in the day. <laughs> That's so awesome. Yeah. So technically you were in some footage. <laughs> that was that was famous. Yeah. Yes. I, I was in the viral trying to stop people from taking pictures of the suit footage. <laughs> well, that is so cool. So we are going to be talking more about the making of Iron Man uh, in just a little bit in, when we get into our Heroes in Motion segment. So we will look forward to hearing some more stories about that, you know. And I'm sure back in the day, you know, you wouldn't tell all your friends, but you were sworn to secrecy. But maybe you wouldn't have gotten a, a secretly coded letter to Steven. You would have dropped it in the mail and he would have had to, you know, break out his decoding mechanism. So I said... We check out the letters that were coming into Wizard with Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So our first letter here is a follow-up to a previous letter that you might recall a couple episodes back where someone was asking, what's better, girls or comics? <laughs> so Jeez. let's check this out here. It says, Dear Jim, I have to agree with your answer to Dave Amiot's letter in Wizard number 63 about which is better, comics or girls. Being a girl who reads comics, I must say we're a lot better. Maybe you can't get a jillion dollars for one of us. Well, 
most of us at an auction, but we're priceless anyway, aren't we? Maybe the question should be, which is better, comics or guys? True, comics are only two-dimensional, but they're still not as shallow as some guys I know. And comics don't constantly change the TV from one football game to another when they don't even really care who wins either of them. Also, comics don't forget to call, and I have a feeling that if comics were sentient, they could take a hint. Of course, you could say equally bad or worse things about girls, or comics for that matter. The fact of the matter is that most people are good, but a small percentage are scum. Let's hope that Dave someday finds a nice girl that won't make him wonder if a non-life form is better than a woman. Mary Jordan from CompuServe. <laughs> Her CompuServe name is 103743.3060 at CompuServe.com. So let's say you're like a comic book nerdy guy. You go to a chat room. You meet the girl of your dreams who likes comics. And you're like, what was her name? Wait, it was 103. Like, how do you, how are you supposed to remember? Maybe that's the issue. Yeah. Maybe just a simpler name. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, just saying. It was a very funny CompuServe screen name. Well, and here's the deal. So we actually have a picture next to this letter of Buddy Scalera, staff member dressed as a geek. And he says, I got your shallow right here, lady. He's <laughs> sticking his finger in his belly button. Like the cat, like what is that? Like a like a heating pad? Yeah, he's got a hot water bottle hanging off him. Th this comes from a previous issue where he was a centerfold and it broke down the look of a geek. I have that issue. Yeah, it yeah. really did. It really did us a lot of favors as comic book fans. This is 90s. what you look like, guys. Let's clean up the act. All right. But here is Jim McLaughlin's response. He says, OK, food for thought. A few clarifications, though. First, men care about who wins in all football games. Second, men are generally much more explicit than women. We tend to be more direct and thus less receptive to hints. If you or any woman go out of your way to be a bit more explicit and direct, I think you'll find that your relationships with men will improve. Your relationships with comics will probably improve for that matter, too. So a little bit of mansplaining from Jim McLaughlin. <laughs> Men are from Mars. There we go. That, that response does not hold up. No, it does no, not. No, no. Hey, listen, lady. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> well, Stephen, I think we have uh, more advice for the love lord in the letters columns this time around. So why don't you take us to our next one? All right, here we go. Dear wizard, I need advice on something kind of comic book related. Here's the story. I am a ninth grader and I have been in love with a girl since sixth grade. Anyway, I asked her out like six times, and she always said no. But the last time she said no, she threatened to kill me, called Comics Immature, and wrote some mean notes and sent them to me. Being a well-liked guy, a bunch of people rushed to my defense by sending her hate notes in my name threatening her. That happened at the end of eighth grade, and I thought I forgot about her over the summer. But when I saw her again a few days ago, I realized I still love her. <laughs> I just don't know what to do. Should I apologize and ask her out again or apologize and try to be friends like she always wanted? Or should I just forget it? Mark McDermott, Cumberland, Rhode Island. Okay, that's uh, there's a lot to unpack there. There is. Uh, so here's Wizard's response. Forget it. She may have called comics immature, which they can sometimes be. But sending hate notes is never a mature idea, especially if someone else is doing it for you. If you have something to say to someone, say it face to face, calmly, without getting nasty. These things have a way of working themselves out. Give it a rest. It's the best course. By the way, since when did this column become advice to the lovelorn? That's <laughs> yeah. a that's a hefty little letter. 
I, I mean, it's amazing this idea of like somebody was mean to me and then everybody wrote hate notes to her and signed my name to him. And that's it's like, well, you might, why don't you just stand up for him instead of making him look worse? You know? <laughs> but it's eighth grade. You know what that letter reminds me of? Yeah. That letter reminds me of when someone that's the, that's the 90s version of when someone tweets something and a celebrity tweets at them and then everyone piles on. Yeah, that's like the 90s version. All the friends write the mean letters. <laughs> all right richie take us into the last letter here <laughs> we have uh brian Danigan of san uh, leandro california writes in the thank wizard for printing a previous letter and he writes dear jim thank you for printing my letter in wizard number 63 i was so insane with happiness i ran up and down the stairs then ran outside and around the block the next day i went to school and showed all my friends and teachers the letter and they were insane with jealousy i went to my favorite comic book shop and they said they would hang the letter somewhere in the store the whole city of leandro probably knows about my letter it is widespread insanity all over the bay area anyway why did you print my letter was it because i typed it was it a good question what were the chances my letter getting printed i'll read the response but i just want to say like he's so excited about his letter getting printed and they printed another letter and now we're going over it in this podcast how many years (laughs) later i hope he hears this and is equally excited with insanity brian tell us if you found it and you could spread it throughout the internet (laughs) And, and now uh jim's response for those tuning in brian wrote a letter asking about marvel's unstable molecules and where professor xavier gets all of his money to answer your questions bry i ran the letter because it contained some good general questions that i thought our readers would enjoy knowing the answers to when i get tired of smart ass quips i like to try doing a little bit of education around these parts typing helps but by no means is a necessity to get a letter published your odds in getting published were about 150 to 1 as we get about 3,000 letters a month and run 20 even though we get so many letters there's no way we can respond to them all rest assured that all letters are read and many letters lead to direct changes every month in wizard and hey see if you can keep it calm this time (laughs) i hope he's not calm brian i hope you run up and down those streets it was an (laughs) honor to read your letter about writing the letter in (laughs) in wizard fantastic so many layers here and i don't know if you know this richie but we are in the presence of someone who had uh something printed in the competitor magazine to wizard hero illustrated that's right steven how did you react when your art was printed you know i thought more people would care (laughs) (laughs) steven i think that was one of the first things you told me when i met you in college (laughs) you had the magazine in your dorm and you're like you have to see this (laughs) it sounds like something i would have done I just remember my friend Chris, his brother was like, hey, that that kid that hangs out here, he looks like he got something in Hero Magazine. And that's how I found out. He's like, oh, yeah, my brother saw that you got something in there. I'm like, really? So I looked and there it was. And that was those are the only people that realized. Well, we hope that you in the future, if we can get you printed in some uh, resurgence of Hero Illustrated again, that you will run up and down the streets like Brian taught us to. Have the joy of that. (laughs) That is no small feat. I sent so many envelopes drawn with different art and never got that published. You never got into Hero? Did you try Hero or just Wizard? Just Wizard. Okay, that's what that was your mistake because I tried Wizard too, and they never. Well, now we know the odds. We're not. But Hero was desperate for content. Yeah. (laughs) Next time. (laughs) All right. Back in time and make this happen. 
Well, if any one of us ever does get a letter printed somewhere because letters suddenly become the only form of communication, maybe again there will be headlines in newspapers that people pay attention to, and we can call that part of our... All right, our top story tonight, get ready for round two of Amalgam Comics, announces the 12 new DC Marvel mashup one-shot titles that will be published the week of April 2nd, 1997. They are Bat Thing, The Dark Claw Adventures, Generation Hex, JLX Unleashed, Lobo the Duck, Super Soldier Man of War, Challengers of the Fantastic, Iron Lantern, Magnetic Men featuring Magneto, Spider-Boy Team-Up, Thorion of the New Asgods, and Uncanny X-Patrol. So I have to ask you guys, this second time around for Amalgam, did you pick up these books? Did you have one in particular? Or if you didn't, is just one of these titles tickling your funny bone? I, I didn't even know they did a round two, and now I'm mad at myself. Really? I think by 97, I was kind of more into movies. Mm. and i was not buying comic books as much uh well, next time i'm in long island go to my dad's house we'll meet up there i have every single one of these <laughs> you read every too. single yeah. one <laughs> in a box in my closet of my childhood room well richie you're better than me again. <laughs> <laughs> not better i'm, I'm i, I want to share them with you because no, i, I would prefer some of these as opposed to some ongoings we have uh currently which was your favorite of these? Okay, uh, so so thinking back, uh, I think the two here that I really love, Dark Claw Adventures and mm -hmm. then the Super Soldier Man of War. Oh, yeah. For okay. me, it's all about the Spider-Boy team-up. That's the one that I have read and reread so many times because it's like this legion of superheroes mashup. Like, it's like he goes like throughout all these different like timelines and the art style is fantastic. It's this artist. I never saw his work again. I can't even pull up the name because it was such a one shot in my mind, but it was sort of manga style, but not really. Like, it, it was just so unique. So that was the one for me, 100%. And I always loved the concept of Iron Lantern. It had some great art. I don't think it played out as cool as it could have been but i was like iron lantern that just makes sense <laughs> so who was was bad thing batman and man thing it's no it, it was man thing and then man bat combined uh, yeah. that makes way more so sense. weird combo <laughs> it's very strange <laughs> <laughs> but like you wouldn't know that based on just bat thing because it could be batman and the thing yeah oh that's a good point actually that would have been really fascinating <laughs> and, and how's challengers of the fantastic it only Challenge. works if you care about challengers of the unknown. Okay. Because <laughs> you're like, oh, this is so clever. But most of us didn't read that. They tried to bring it back multiple times. I don't think very many people really got sold on it. So, yeah. But uh, what I love about this is this past weekend, me and my son were at the comic book store and they were having a giant back issue sale. And in one of the bins, he pulled out DC versus Marvel, well, Marvel versus DC part three and bought that as part of... <laughs> As, as part of his haul and he's just been drawing some of the fights like non-stop since oh, Saturday. That. That's amazing. That's so yeah. cool. Well, you know, the thing is, I feel like if they had combined, there was a rumor last issue that maybe at some point that Marvel was going to buy DC in the 80s. And if that had happened and the Amalgam universe was just a thing constantly, it may have helped out Marvel in their financial situation at this time. So, Richie, why don't you take us into our next headline here? Marvel files for bankruptcy. 
It's a small half-page story revealing that Marvel Entertainment Group filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on December 27th, 1996. Previously unknown president and COO of Marvel Entertainment Group, David Schiff, explains, there will be absolutely no interruption in our publishing schedule or development for TV and feature film projects. Behind the scenes, a battle of the businessmen was taking place as Wizard reports. Ron Perelman, who owns Marvel Entertainment Group with approximately 80% of the Marvel stock, is attempting to maintain control of Marvel Entertainment during the financial restructuring, but his nemesis, Carl Eichen, has vowed to fight Perelman in court concerning the questionable nature in which Perelman is handling the payment of Marvel shareholders and bondholders. Okay, I remember hearing they filed for bankruptcy and practically running in my room and like crying, thinking that I would never get another issue of Spider-Man or X-Men. How, how, how did you both react to the news in, in 1997? I mean, I was really bummed and I remember th- <laughs> this is such a weird thing to remember, but I remember, I remember thinking maybe I should buy Marvel stock. <laughs> did you, did you buy I've never it? bought stock in my life, but I remember at the time being like, maybe they'll come back and I should buy Marvel stock. And now imagine if I'd done that. Well, and that's the thing for me when it happened, obviously like we're not thinking about the state of Marvel's shareholders and what they're being paid out and all this stuff. And like, I, I kind of had a similar reaction to, to Richie, but then at the same time, I was like, you know, I'm mostly buying gen 13 and Madman comics <laughs> right now. So maybe I don't care quite as much. The thing is though, I did buy Marvel stock sort of, because in sixth grade, they taught us about the stock exchange and we had to pull out the business section for a week and we had to watch our stocks go up and down. And of course, the stock I chose was Marvel. I was like, Marvel? What? They're here? So they were the one I selected. I watched them go up and down. And so that was like super fun for me. But uh, yeah, it, it's it was kind of crazy to try to imagine like, what if Marvel had just disappeared? I mean, obviously the characters would not have disappeared, but if the company wasn't operating the way it had been, like where would they, where would they have all gone? I mean, it would have been fascinating. Well, you you would hope that they would uh, liquidate and sell the Fantastic Four unreleased movie to somebody. <laughs> Maybe somebody named Steven Sapellus. I mean, just you know, put out the put out the movie. Come on, what have you got to lose? You're going bankrupt. I assume they would have sold just all of the Fantastic Four, but broke them up so they were just selling. <laughs> yeah, I would have bought one, one of them to each different company. <laughs> Johnny Human George, I would have bought that. Well, guys, there is something else going on over at Marvel. They're losing one of their own. They'd already been laying off a bunch of people, but somebody decided that he had to take his leave of his own accord because overburdened Kiesel leaves Daredevil, features many quotes from the writer of Superman, Superboy, and Daredevil, who explains, quote, the reason for my departure is that I feel like I've been working too much lately. If I was doing a little less work, I think the work I did do would be better. Superman is a steady gig in an uncertain marketplace, so I never really considered sending that one away. It was hard because Daredevil was getting such great coverage, but I just couldn't figure out what to do with the character, and the Superboy book is just so much fun to work on, so I chose to cross off Daredevil. Now, that is the case, guys, because the last six months, they have just been pushing, pushing this Daredevil run in Wizard. Like, they love it so much, so for him to leave, like, this major component to what they're... And the fact that they were actually giving them a cover, which we'll get into in a second it's crazy to to imagine that that would be the case it's just like bad timing for wizard i guess <laughs> they put their eggs in the wrong basket but it is reported that carrie nord is going to stay on as penciler of the book with newcomer joe kelly as the writer 
But shortly after this, Nord leaves too, and he's replaced by classic Marvel artist Gene Colan. Things go up and down, but you would hope, you know, like DC seemed to hang on to their creative teams a little bit more. And Marvel was seemed to be, have a hard time hanging on to the DC writers they were bringing over, right? They had Dan Jurgens. He left Sensational Spider-Man after just a few issues. So it just kind of wasn't working out. But did you guys have any interest in Daredevil at the time? Was he on your radar, so to speak? I, I had actually, I, I loved Daredevil when I started. But by this time, I sort of, I think that was one of the few monthly titles I was not getting. And this was around the rocky period of Daredevil where it's sort of where he went away for a bit, right? Like he was sort of, he had some spikes, like highs and lows, and this was like building him back up. And then it, you know, not not like crashed down, but like, wasn't this like the start of Daredevil sort of really falling into the background? Yeah, well, because he had been dark Daredevil for so long. Everybody was imitating Steven's favorite guy, Frank Miller. And he would just, he would, they were doing the grim and gritty Daredevil and they took him as low as he could go, even Frank fractured personalities, everything else. And then ultimately they just said, we're going to do a happy Daredevil, fun time Daredevil, which is what this was, which is why Wizard loved it so much. And I just read it recently for the first time and I thought it was fantastic too. So kind of a shame. I don't think I picked up another Daredevil issue until kevin smith's run mm, i think it was, was just that yeah. order yeah All yeah right. likewise that's when i started reading daredevil again was kevin smith's run speaking of gene colon on daredevil wizard highlights the comics veteran in a where are they now feature where it's explained my first break into comics came from stan lee when he was just a kid stan may have only been three years older than me but he was running the place and got me a job right away colon explains that in the 50s the comic book witch hunt caused work to dry up so he got into advertising. But eventually comics picked up again with a new excitement with Fantastic Four number one. I started getting enough work to leave the advertising field and I was glad to because comics is what I loved. Colin then worked on Doctor Strange, Neymar, Namor, Neymar? Because <laughs> now, now it's Namor. In the... Nobody knows how to say it. Yeah. Well, in the Black Panther movie, they call him Namor, <laughs> the Submariner, and took over Daredevil from John Romita Sr. to become a defining artist for the character. In the 70s, Colin pitched Tomb of Dracula to Marvel, about which Colin declares it was the only monster book that prevailed in the long run. My friend John Tarani owns original Gene Colin cover art from that series. Richie knows John as well and is very proud of it. He talked about it uh, a lot when we uh, interviewed him on the podcast. In the 80s, Colin did work for independents like Comico and Eclipse, but then had a 20-year battle with Glaucoma where he went nearly blind, which obviously pre prevented him from being able to draw. That's so sad. I didn't know that. Yeah. Having finally recovered his sight at this time, it was only appropriate that he was getting back to regular comics work with the likes of Daredevil. Is Gene Colan a name that means something to your comic book reading? Well, I, I will say for me, the only time I ever saw his name is when I would pick up like a Marvel Tales reprint book and then I'd see something, you know, from the 70s or something and be like, jumping Gene Colan, you know, like in a fill-in issue or whatever. So, I yeah, I don't know that uh, he was someone that I could say, oh, he was amazing and I could point to a specific work of his, but it's a name I definitely know rings through the history of Marvel in a big way. I, I am so bad with names. I I used to confuse everyone. Uh, years later, I even made like uh, a short film series with a character that I thought was original creation called Roger Stern, forgetting that Roger <laughs> Stern is like one of the most popular <laughs> writers of when I read. So I, I am the last person anyone should ask in terms of 
<laughs> name creators. All right. Well, here's a name that you might know also, or maybe you don't, but his fans are rabid for him. Titans Go Manga with Scissors Paper Stone announces a new prestige format Elseworlds Teen Titans one-shot from artist of Dirty Pair at Dark Horse Comics, Adam Warren, titled Titans Scissors Paper Stone, which is set in the year 6000. DC editor Dan Thorsland explains, quote, It's 48 pages of stuff that only Adam Warren could write and illustrate, including action sequences featuring 60-foot monsters and stuff like that. This is a personal favorite book of mine, guys. From the 90s, I started reading, like, in my early days of digging through back issue bids, like, New Teen Titans, and I was all excited and I loved it, and then I dropped off, and this is, like, the only Titans book I ever bought after that. And it's just, it's super fun. It's, like, just, like, four members of a team in a future society, so, like, instead of Firestar... There is an, uh, not Firestar, instead of Starfire, my bad, <laughs> instead of Starfire, they have it like an alien guy. And then the cyborg is this girl whose body got burned up in an accident and she got put in the synthetic military robot body. They have a Raven type character who's like bringing the team together, just like Teen Titans did. And then uh, they have a, another guy who basically gets implanted with Robin's personality. So he becomes Dick Grayson. Like, it's really cool. So and the, the art is fantastic. So I just have to ask you, like, I'm not a manga guy at all, especially at this time when it was becoming popular. It turned me away from most books but do you guys know adam warren have you ever heard of this particular book i do not remember that book but it it, it sort of strangely reminds me of like teen titans go mm-hmm, is, is yeah. it that vibe for energy and excitement yes uh, character models definitely not but yes i mean it is just like everybody's got their mouth open yeah you know it's all that kind of stuff can i just say that you accidentally created the best amalgam character <laughs> firestar and starfire how did they not do that what what would they have called it like star star or firefire i think just firefire yeah <laughs> there's, there's still time steven this could fire be your your starfire yeah fire star fire there you go let's do it i mean this is like this is the best idea oh well richie you say you're not good with names but i think there's a couple of names coming up you have to have heard of you must be familiar with so take us into the next thing so i assume you're talking about mark wade and andy kerbert who are teaming up for a new ongoing kazar series wade was best known at this time for his long run on the flash and impulse uh but the writer was looking for a break from that world uh, as was artist andy kerbert who says i was reaching the point creatively where i needed to do something else since mark and i were looking to work together again we went through a list of marvel characters that didn't go over to image for heroes reborn and came up with kazar uh, about the tone of Kazar, Kubert explains, the main conflict of the series will be surrounding Shana, who likes the Savage Land and shuns civilization. And then there's Kazar, who loves civilization, which makes for tension. It's going to be a roller coaster full of action. Now, personally... I love the Savage Land. I love when the X-Men go to the Savage Land and fight. I love when it was on the animated series. What what, what do you guys think? Do you, are you fans of the Savage Land? Are you fans of uh, jungle stories and comics in general? I like the Savage Land. And, and there's some rumors that that's going to be brought into the MCU. And I think that's, that sounds pretty cool. Wow. Yeah, I, I know people always point to, I love the Savage Land stories. And that's why like Jim Lee, when he had his run on X-Men, oh, I wanted to put him back in the Savage Land, all that stuff. Doesn't appeal to me. I'm not a Tarzan guy. I'm not like, I actually picked up this first issue of Kazar. I just fa- happened to find it in a back issue bin recently. And I read through it. I was like, yeah, he's riding a dinosaur. I guess that's cool. But it just, it doesn't ever catch me because it's like, 
I don't know. I, I guess I'm always more like on the sci-fi side of things, even if it's like, you know, you could say like a fantasy jungle. It, it, it just never appeals to me. That'll be like the last book on a shelf I'll probably look at. The art I remember being really striking. I remember like the art just really standing out in that series. Can't argue with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, Andy Kubert is very talented. So at least you're going to have solid uh, storytelling from that perspective. All right. Why don't you close this out here, Stephen? Uh, so th this is really fun. Finally, with intercompany crossover stories being big business in 1996, Wizard ran a poll for their for their AOL users asking, which was your favorite crossover of the year? I bet I voted in this. Marvel versus DC won with 52% of the vote. Next, Star Trek, X-Men, and DC Marvel, all access tied with 13% each, while the category of other earned 9%. John Burns, Batman, Captain America got 6%, and dead last were Rob Liefeld Productions. Young, wait, do I get, am I allowed to say that name on the podcast? <laughs> we have taken it off. We, we have oh, okay, There's so okay. much news we couldn't afford okay. not to say his name anymore. Sorry, I, I was like, is this a, a trap? <laughs> Uh, Youngblood X-Force uh, got 8% and Bad Rock Wolverine got 3%. Oh, what a shock. No one loved the Bad Rock Wolverine crossover. I have it back here just because I wanted to find out how uh, late that it That doesn't mean be. you love it. That no. just means you Were you in the 3%? Did you vote for it? <laughs> I would have been voting for Marvel All Access. When asked for their take on the number of crossovers being published, 66% did too many. While 24% thought it was just right, and the remaining 10% said not enough. Goldilocks could not be reached for comment. That's, a, that's ah, Adam's joke. That's, that's my not joke. my joke. It was just in the notes. <laughs> The most anticipated announced crossover for 1997 was Generation X Gen 13, while the biggest wish list crossover was Spider-Man Spawn, which to this day remains a pipe dream. Yeah, so generally speaking, people. guys, at this time, were crossovers getting your attention or were you just like, ah, so many, they're desperate? I was into them whenever they would happen. I, I was a huge fan. I, I was all about crossovers, company crossovers, just in-universe crossovers. That's Batman awesome. Spawn, like Batman Spawn was like, like a huge event in middle school. Yes. Superman uh, Aliens. I just remember Superman Aliens. Yeah. Every issue was better than, than the last. And they, for some reason, introduced another Supergirl that, that never came back. Yeah. They had to. They had to. One of these things is not like the other. Superman Aliens, Batman Spawn, or Spawn Batman. Um, yeah. Sorry. They were terrible. I mean, they were terrible comments, but we were <laughs> excited were nonetheless. <laughs> and you know it's back, right? So that's the question. How are people liking oh, the really? new one? Oh, yeah. They did, they've just done oh, it again. <laughs> I, I am so out of it. I, yeah, I, yeah. I did not know that. If Michael were here, he would be filling us in on all the details. I actually went to the comic book store today to pick up something else, and I did not see a copy of it. So it must have sold out so good for my, them. you know my local comic book store we went a couple weeks ago and the guy said they were moving and he told us the new location and he said yeah we should be there by the beginning of the month and then i looked and they weren't there oh you just stand so out there desperately. we no longer have a local comic book store for the time uh, being oh no yeah a candlelight vigil will be held tonight <laughs> it's hard it's hard up here all right. Well, guys, it's time to get into the meat of the issue. There was so much news, but there is so much more to discuss. So we're going to check out our table of contents. Now, Wizard 67 with a March 1997 cover date featured two covers. The first was a Ghibli Heroes Reborn image featuring Iron Man and the Thing. Though, the big book of Wizard covers tells us that originally the Human Torch was Tony Stark's wingman on that cover, but they decided their color schemes were too similar. So they said, well, 
well, let's just put the thing in there instead. And this is crazy because Jim Lee, this is like his second hero. Well, I know this is his third Heroes Reborn cover because he did a mashup with Liefeld, which was a mess. And then he did a Fantastic Four cover. So he was all about it in this time trying to make those books sell. But the other one I made reference to earlier was a Carrie Nor Daredevil cover with accompanying polybag text. What does it say there, Richie? Do you see it there on the bottom right? No, it says the man without Kiesel. So it's kind of funny. Instead of the man without fear, Kiesel is on his way out. The package on the issue had a Batman versus Wildcat die cut chromium card. Again, I feel like this is something Michael could tell us about. It was like, was that a storyline that had just happened or did Wizard just create that card? I don't know. There's like, this would be cool to see. But there was also a large four panel Star Wars poster. Like this thing is like is really big, you know, in comparison, they usually just did like the single fold, you know. There's also an AOL subscription disc for version 3.0, Steven. <laughs> you got to upgrade. That was the best version, as we all know, <laughs> as we all remember. And there's also a mail-away offer for a Star Wars Rogue Squadron half comic. Now, this confused me a little bit because there had been an Applejack serial mail-away offer in 1995 for something called Star Wars X-Wing, the Rogue Squadron special. And this is obviously a different comic, just barely, but it has a different creative team and everything. But I was just like, did they literally just repackage that and give it to Wizard? But no, it's a totally different deal. So, Richie, something that you were telling us before, you've been talking about the comics that you have back at your childhood home, but uh, you also had this issue and how many more it's still in the poly bag okay so uh when when i went back there last i remember i was i was actually texting back and forth with uh steven pictures and everything i found through i think it was like issue 106 still in the bags although now looking at this one when you said to look at the bag for that tagline i noticed uh well this wizard in particular was put in the wrong bag so this one had a free X-Men and Wildcats poster, Silver Surfer a half, and some uh, and a Witchblade card. I mixed up my bags. I I apologize. Wow. I I don't know what I was thinking 35 <laughs> 30 years ago. We'll forgive you. Shocking <laughs> turn of events. This this cover with Iron Man and Thing, it's beautiful and it holds up and it's it's dynamic. The the line art is great. I I love this. I the Daredevil cover was cool too, but this I don't know. I, I was also all about you know Heroes Reborn. Okay, well we're gonna well, get, we'll get into, into that. that here. Yeah, let's talk <laughs> because our first cover story is called the second half, and it is a follow-up interview with Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, making reference to their entering the home stretch on the last six issues of their financially successful year-long takeover of Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Captain America, and the Avengers. Now, about the Fantastic Four, Jim Lee says, "Quote." Maybe I went a little faster in the first three issues than I should have, but in my mind, it was all one story. I wish I could have done it in one issue. Now, regarding Iron Man's relationship with Pepper Potts, Lee makes the most 90s of comparisons. Quote, I see her as Sandra Bullock in Speed. (laughs) If this were the 70s when books were called Captain America, The Falcon, Daredevil, and Black Widow, this would be called Iron Man and Pepper Potts. Now, I have to ask you, Stephen, your love of Fantastic Four was burning bright and then Heroes Reborn happens. What did you think of that take? I I was excited for for like a new start, even though I did love the Ralph Macchio, Tom DeFalco stuff. 
which was around this time, I want to say. And, you know, just I think at that time, there had not been a Fantastic Four number one since the like the early 60s. Right. Am I mistaken? Yeah. Was this I mean, the it first? It was just ongoing. Yeah. They never rebooted <laughs> it. Yeah. Because now, now that there's a, a Fantastic Four number one every couple of weeks. <laughs> but back then it was it was a big deal. So I was into it. I thought the artwork was great. I thought it was a fun modern take. Obviously, that was my favorite of the Heroes Reborn stuff. But I thought it mostly worked. Am I wrong in thinking that? <laughs> I, mean, I, I I agree with you. Uh, I agree 100%. Iron Man, if it wasn't for Heroes Reborn, I feel like Iron Man, I, I don't know what they would have done because he, he had been replaced with the teenage version of Iron right. Man. He had gone evil. This gave them a fresh start and gave them like that perfect opening to like reintroduce him with no more weird time travel or anything. right well that's the thing like of the heroes reborn books i read because i was definitely not reading him at the time i wasn't a jim lee or a rob liefeld guy and i read them recently i was like iron man was the best of all of these four titles i thought it was handled the best it was the most interesting but this is what's interesting liefeld shares his plans that are not to be because as you might recall he didn't make it past the first half of this event but as a result uh we get to see some what could have been so sketches are shared featuring his version of union jack and spitfire planned for issue seven of captain america and he announces that stephen platt was going to be the artist for issues nine through eleven which feature what he calls stephen listen up an x-files twist with an alien landing hitler and nazis because that's what the x-files was about hitler and nazis right (laughs) that's uh not great not quite. Uh, while issue 11 was to be a solo adventure for the new female Bucky and the finale in issue 12 would have culminated with a visit from Galactus. As for the Avengers, stories involving Vision, Scarlet Witch, Hawkeye, Swordsman, and Mantis were in the works. But you might be asking yourself, what was the future of Heroes Reborn? What would they have done if they had gotten a second set of 12 issues? And we're going to answer that in just a second, but I got to know, Richie, what was your take on Liefeld's half of Heroes Reborn? I, I, I think Captain America is the only one of the relaunch titles that I only made it to like issue two and then dropped it. And like, I, I was I was one of those people that like tried to like buy everything and whatever I could, but it just the Captain America didn't work for me. Fantastic Four was great. Iron Man was my my favorite of the batch. Avengers, I think, was a little hit and miss. Uh, I don't think I can get the image of Thor, how he was drawn in that series out of my head. It was it was a different take on it. But uh, I, I wasn't a fan of the, the Captain America. It just didn't work for me. Yeah, definitely in a, in a recent poll, that was like the lowest tier among AOL users for Wizard World, at least. <laughs> All right, but uh, Wizard reports, uh, in the words of Liefeld, that he is the least optimistic that his books, at least, will continue past their first year. He says, the overall fan excitement and sales indicate it should go on. I'll be very disappointed if it doesn't, but I expect it won't. I've learned to hope for the best and plan for the worst. (laughs) Maybe got that tattooed on his arm, you know, just to look at every day. Uh, When asked about what he would do story-wise for year two, Rob wishes to, quote, develop the triangle among Agatha Harkness, Scarlet Witch, and the Enchantress. It's a shame we won't get to develop that subplot more because it's the one that has most of my attention. 
also mentioned is the desire to involve the Squadron Supreme, about which Rob says, I have a tremendous fondness for them. Listeners of the Observations podcast, which I am no longer, I dropped it several months ago, because you will be very aware of his love of Agatha Harkness, Scarlet Witch, Squadron Supreme, the Wondergore Mountain storyline, all of these things, because he cites them constantly. He's a broken record. That was his introduction to the concept of creating echoes of pre-existing characters and then calling them original creations, which became his bread and butter. And speaking of which, Rob also reveals he created a British Avengers-style team called The Crown with characters named after British royalty that he was going to use in the book. So, I mean, he had lots of plans, but any of those kept you on board when it have brought you back and made you excited about more about Avengers there, Richie? No. <laughs> Simply put, no. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Agatha. Uh, how Agatha was portrayed in uh, in WandaVision is, is still one of my favorite MCU characters and costumes, because we did a whole family WandaVision costume. Awesome. But no, nothing that was said there would have <laughs> would have brought me back. Yeah, that's, he's definitely reaching out to an older generation with that one. All right. Well, Stephen, why don't you take us into our second cover story? The second cover story, A Devil of a Tale, is a retrospective on the history of the Matt Murdock character as Daredevil in comics since the 1960s, taking into account all the retconning of his ninja training by Stick as presented by Frank Miller in various stories over the years. It does not provide much new insight into the character, although fans of 90s comics who never read the stories featuring the armored daredevil, which Rizzo refers to as the weird years in this feature, <laughs> might be interested to hear the breakdown of that bizarre era. I'll mention this. So this is something that Wizards been doing a lot of lately to get high profile characters on the cover. So like maybe there's an actual event going on and that's the first cover. And the second cover will be like, well, there's another hot book that's just maintaining its popularity. Like they'll put Gen 13 on the cover and then inside the issue, it's just like a general article. Like, let's catch you up on what Gen 13 is all about. You know, so it's kind of like, I don't know. It feels like cheating to me. It's like, you got to have some news to put it on the cover, right? All right. So the weird years, a major turning point in Matt's life came during a battle with his demonically created evil duplicate known as Hellspawn created during the Infinity War miniseries. During the conflict, Matt's secret identity was made public and he was forced to fake his own death, change his costume to a black bladed version and go into hiding where he adopted the identity of Jack Batlin in homage to his father. Amidst this storyline, Electra was discovered to be alive. Don't ask. It's a long story. Should I keep going with this weirdness? I think that's fine. But isn't that okay. so odd? Like, yeah. Like, just, like, I don't think we, none of us read this, did we? We're not aware that that was what was happening. This was the black and red suit? Yeah, with the blades and the armored look. That's I read, what I read that stuff. Like, I remember, I remember being into that because, like, I had the Toy Biz repaint as well. Well, they talk about even like he eventually gets split personalities and then it comes back together. Like, I'm just like, really? I remember none of this. <laughs> All right, well, speaking of stuff some people may not remember, Richie, why don't you tell us about this next article? Uh, yes, uh, Choose Your Poison. It's an interview with the creator of Poison Elves, Drew Hayes, who after several years of self-publishing his uh, black and white indie book has been picked up by Serious Entertainment. If you've never heard of Poison Elves or its main character, Lucifer, a mercenary elf assassin, Hayes describes it as Terminator meets Lord of the Rings. 
He explains, new readers sometimes freak out when they see that my elves kick ass, but I've never met anyone who read an issue and didn't want to come back for more. (laughs) Of the inspiration for his R-rated fantasy world, Hayes revealed, people who know me can see a little bit of my life in the things that happen in the book. It's mostly a matter that at 17, I thought I knew everything and I wound up on the streets and found out how little I knew. I slept in condemned houses in the dead of winter. Uh, I assume he was going to go on talking about how he then became an assassin, but it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't go that far. <laughs> did, did you guys read Poison Elves? I, I do not. I have no recollection of this existing. No, not at all. This is definitely like underground indie stuff. Like we had a, we had a friend on the podcast way back when, Sean Robert, and he was a big Poison Elves guy. He actually tried to buy original Poison Elves art and they were just charging too much at the convention situation. But it was kind of fascinating because I ended up with a few issues back in the day. I bought this mystery lot of books and there was Poison Elves in there. And I read it and it is, it's so strange. It's like a fantasy world, but the elf has guns, but he's fighting fighting like these fantasy characters and then he talks like he's you know just a regular 90s guy but you'll have like you know all these mages and all these things so it's it is a very odd mashup uh but i don't know are you guys like fantasy stories at all like do you get into lord of the rings and all those things like i like lord of the rings and that's about where it ends do you know what i would read though i would read terminator verse lord of the rings like the terminator goes back in time into lord (laughs) of the rings and sign me up yeah it'd be awesome if the terminator like you know he's got the endoskeleton right but then he puts on a suit of armor on top of that so it's like metal with his flesh in the middle then he's got metal on the inside i don't know that'd be kind of picture the t-1000 makes his arms into swords and is just sword fighting people or jousting (laughs) yeah yes (laughs) Not, not not to be a judgmental nerd, but I always judge the fantasy kids pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different mindset. Like the LARPing sure. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And D&D, I was just like, God, I'm already like everyone already thinks I'm a total loser. Do I have to add more to that? Poison well. Elves sort of sounds like a more violent Masters of the Universe. Hey, Michael, you know, a lot of geeks out there have a savage land of unkempt hair in their pants that needs to be tamed. Luckily, a team of heroes has assembled to save the day. We're talking about the crew at Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. That's right. Manscaped has an exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at Manscaped.com. Manscaped is all about enabling your personal style. If you want to trim your bush to look like Wolverine's signature mutant mane, use the Lawnmower 4.0. Their fourth generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is waterproof and also has a 4000 Kelvin LED spotlight you need for a more precise shave. And because this trimmer is waterproof, you can say goodbye to the mess on the bathroom floor. You just know that after the beach, East is down in the bathroom every morning and Gambit walks into that mess of blue fur. He's one raging Cajun. <laughs> Manscaped sent us each the Performance Package 4.0 and it is a game changer. Inside this package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Toner, the Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to hold your goodies. The Lawnmower 4.0 is the future of grooming, and I am loving it. So I will tell you the truth, right? 
I have been shaving parts of my body for years. And in particular, my nether regions can be a little bit crazy. And, you know, I've tried so many different things. I'm always afraid to, like, shave it in the shower to short out the, the buzzer. Now with the lawnmower 4.0, I can get it wet because it's waterproof. I don't worry about getting hair all over the toilet seat, making a huge mess. I am excited to give this thing a go and clean up everything. My back hair, my shoulders, even my head. <laughs> head to toe, baby. Top to bottom. Now, the Performance Package 4.0 by Manscaped is definitely going to be the number one gift around the X-Mansion this Christmas because it also includes the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. Michael, I got to tell you this. So my dad used to trim his nose hairs with a Swiss Army knife just taking the scissors Those out while scissors? in traffic. Yeah. He's no. shoving up his nose. He's jamming his blades in his nose like Wolverine, guy. I mean, it was crazy. Your dad is hardcore. Honestly, like, I would just worry about him every time we were <laughs> driving somewhere. But now he doesn't have to do that anymore because I am getting him the Weed Whacker nose and ear hair trimmer for Christmas. He's going to get the hookup. He's going to appreciate it because he always loves to look his best. But the Weed Whacker is also waterproof and provides proprietary skin safe technology which helps reduce nicks snags and tugs in those delicate nose holes because dad doesn't have a mutant healing factor like logan gotta help that guy out so i feel like it's a design that would make forge proud sounds like it but manscaped is more than just top-notch trimming their crop preserver ball deodorant and crop reviver ball toner will change the way you approach your hygiene routine trust me when i say this fellas your balls will thank you manscaped even includes two free gifts with their performance package 4.0 manscaped's boxers and the shed travel bag bring your comfort and boxers to another level. It's time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off and free shipping with the code WIZARDS20. That's right. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code WIZARDS20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. All you have to do is use code WIZARDS20. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Keep your balls bagged and buzzed. <laughs> All right, next one here, Manga Man, is an interview with Frederick L. Schott, the author of Manga, 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 the world of Japanese comics, which is part of Wizard's continuing effort to provide insight to American readers who are starting to gain interest in this world. Now, the history of comics that he has written about the comic scene in Japan is not as interesting as when he goes into the difference between the Japanese and American comic industries of the 90s, okay? So I'm going to read a quick excerpt here where he says, there are many comics conventions in Japan, but they're not conventions to sell old comics. They're generally conventions where fanzines are sold. The largest and craziest conventions in Japan are those dealing with jojinshi or fanzines. A jojinshi convention may draw hundreds of thousands of fans together to buy, sell, and trade their homemade manga. Unlike their American counterparts, which are usually cheaply produced, many Japanese fanzines can be quite expensive and feature professional quality printing. And then he says here, when I went to the Super Comic City Convention at Tokyo's huge Harumi Trade Center in 1994, I was absolutely shocked. There were almost a quarter of a million people in one spot. It's almost like an alternate universe to the commercial manga market. There are publishers for the fanzine market. There are stores that cater to people creating the fanzines, selling paper and tools. We have nothing comparable. Is that weird? It's just like 
there's a whole genre of just indie comics. It's like, yeah, professional stuff, sure. But we like just the homemade stuff that is, it sounds like it's almost the same quality. It's like indie films. People just want something a little handmade. I mean, where do you guys fall just in general? Manga, anime, influence? Like, do you like it when it, it works its way into the art style in your American comics? Or do you like the original of Japanese comics? Do you ever give them a shot? I just, I mean, the only one that I can think of that I read was Scott Pilgrim. And that was more of influence than an original. Was that after the movie or before? Uh, yeah, I waited till Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> I remember Marvel did a, a line where they had, you know, Punisher and Wolverine in the in the sort of in the style. But no, I never I never got into that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I grew up, we had a lot of Japanese folks uh, in my neck of the woods growing up. So a lot of my friends had, and we had foreign exchange students that lived at our house from Japan. So we had a lot of manga around me, but yeah, it always just seemed a little too intense. And especially like he mentions in this article, it's like, there's very popular manga just about people working in office buildings. <laughs> it's like, okay. But yeah, it, it has mostly kept me away, except for Adam Warren. I thought he was a, a good melding there when I talked well, a lot about of Titans A lot book. of the style sort of came in right so like you know like joe mad's x-men run right that was that was heavily influenced and that i think is my favorite some of my favorite art ever yeah and you mentioned you know j scott campbell and gen 13 definitely had a manga look it, at least on the faces that's what i always felt like the bodies were jim lee and the faces were were manga faces so uh but steven why don't you take us into our final segment here <laughs> Closing out here, the Wizard Q&A with James Robinson provides insight into the fan favorite writer of such titles as Starman, Leave It to Chance, not Leave It to Beaver, Batman, <laughs> Legends of the Dark Knight, and for a time, Jim Lee's Wildcats. On the origins of his Starman book, Robinson explains, I had wanted to do something using an established DC character, and I wanted to find a character that had no positive perception and possibly even a negative perception. Starman suited what I was looking for. I realized that the thing that was missing was a sense of heritage that the Flash and Green Lantern have. So it was obvious to use Ted and David Knight, the first and second Starman. Ted Knight? Like from... Uh, <laughs> the announcer of for Super Comfort Friends? Run, run! Harry Tyler Moore, Caddyshack? <laughs> You'll get nothing and like it. Uh, to begin Jack Knight's heritage, on how long this, this series will last, Robinson states... Jack Knight will cease to be Starman in January of 2000. It should be noted that the series was so popular that it ran until 2001. Have you guys ever read Starman? Not the John Carpenter Starman? Nope. I actually just picked up a nice copy of John Carpenter's Starman on VHS recently. But that's no. uh, kind of an oxymoron, but that's fine. <laughs> a nice copy on VHS. <laughs> oh, the box was beautiful, at least. Very okay, that's shiny. good. That's yeah. fair. <laughs> Uh, I have, but only because of the podcast. It's one of those books that I always saw, like it, because it was just around forever. And so I was yeah. just like, man, people love this book. I can't believe it's still being published. So I read like the first, I think, 10 issues and it is very well established. Like the universe is built out. It's fantastic. I actually was just in this thrift store that had bought out somebody's whole collection of comics. They were selling issues one through 57 for $90. And I was like, what? Only 57 issues and you're charging 90 bucks? So I don't know. Like somebody thinks it's valuable. I, I remember picking up scattered, you know, scattered issues, but never really jumping in deep on the long run. But I, I just got to go back to the, 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 the whole thing of like, I wanted a character that everyone hated so I can make him good. Like sort of about setting the, the standards low. 
<laughs> for it. But it just, doesn't it feel like that is what comic book creators do now, though? That's how you create the next hot character. You take a D-lister and write a great story about it and be like, it doesn't matter. It could have been anybody. And now that character is everybody's favorite suddenly. Yeah, you can say that for like Sandman. Same, yeah. Same thing. It's a cool challenge, I think, as a writer to take something that has never been done well before and just really make it your own. Yeah. So moving on with this, Robinson had also recently launched the creator-owned Leave It to Chance about a young girl named Chance who wants to be the next falconer, a family responsibility to be the world's most renowned sorcerer. Her father doesn't let her, so she gets into her own mysteries. Robinson explains his motivation for creating the book. It's bothered me that there isn't a female demographic in comics. Girls may start reading comics with something like Archie comics, but they get alienated by all this boys fiction that's in most comics. Some of them get their navels pierced, start wearing dark eyeliner and start reading Vertigo books. Okay. But the bulk of them stay away from comics completely. I thought there had to be a way that you could come up with a, a book that will attract girls with a strong female character. It felt together that the perfect amalgam would be Nancy Drew meets Kolchak Night Stalker. That actually is a very good selling point for me. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the book is selling out everywhere is a very pleasant reward for her efforts. So what's a good gateway comic for female readers, young or old? I feel like now, obviously, times have changed. Oh, yeah. The comic field has diversified and they realize that they need to tell stories for different people so it's much easier now than it was then yeah like i don't know if you guys have read like the new she hulk book that's been out for a couple months that coincided with the the disney plus series but like it's just got a female perspective to it which i think is different than you know the john burns perspective that i love in sensational she hulk it's like okay that's a guy's idea on a female superhero but this is written by a woman and it's interesting because like it does distance me a little bit because i can't relate 100 percent and even leave it to chance like i've read a few issues of it and i'm just like yeah i was never a young girl who felt like I was being held down and didn't get to, you know, do the same things that, you know, my male family members or friends or something, you know, like, so I, I can't come at it from that perspective, but I've been trying to like get my wife to read something. She's just like, ah, these pictures with words, it's hard to read. I just like books. So I was like, oh, come on, dear. Like I want her to read Terry Moore's Echo. I think that's a great series that she would probably get a, a kick out of because there's two very strong female characters in it. They're cool. But that's more person specific i think for yeah. comics comics have always appealed to both boys and girls it was sort of a lot of the attitude i think back then that you know a lot of girls or women didn't want to read because some of the guys reading it were so toxic mm -hmm. but i mean any comic really can appeal across the board yeah and uh, i think it was just like you said getting more creative more diverse creative more you know more women writers artists and just the gatekeeping had to stop to open it up more so to everyone and, and yeah. i love it i love picking up a comic that i don't see eye to eye with the perspective or have the life experience because it gives me something completely new to to read and experience i, I love that every character doesn't have to be me and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, it puts the shoe on the other foot. Yeah, so it's it's interesting to have that perspective for sure. So finally, Wizard asks about whether Robinson would ever consider doing a book at Marvel since he has yet to work for the House of Ideas, to which he responds, they asked me if I wanted to do a Doc Samson project. It's funny how a lot of that transposed over into Starman, but that fell through for one reason or another. Do you guys follow artists or writers like Robinson more as far as influencing your comics purchase? Yeah, so are huh. you writer-focused, you artist-focused, or does it have to be like a good creative team you know has worked together before? I think it's the creative team for me. Like, it's a combination of the art and the writing. 
because the art can take me out of it if it's not appealing to me. Yeah, well, because like for me, for example, you know, you and I both love Mike Allred. And Mm -hmm. so Michael's telling me, well, there's this new Superman book that Mike Allred is drawing. And I was like, oh, great. He's doing a Superman book, you know, and I was like, I actually went to a comic store to go find it. And I was like, oh, but he's not writing it. I like my Mike Allred writes and draws his own stuff. I didn't like ecstatics. I just, I, you know, Silver Surfer is probably one I need to check out more. Oh, that was fantastic. I read that. That's amazing. But like, but when he's, when he's just the artist, it doesn't appeal to me because he's got a sensibility that works with his art. Well, and like, I mean, you, you get to know a character as, as your vision or like just the vision that an artist has. And Mm -hmm. and then when they swap out an artist, you're like, wait a second, that's not the face I've come to know for Robin. (laughs) I I was an artist sort of junkie where Mm -hmm. the art had to appeal to me. The cover had to pull me in. I hated when a cover was amazing. Then you like, you know, you get it out of the bag and you you open it and the art inside is completely different. Yeah. So I I was very much, you know, those, I mean, there's of course those creators where I would pick up anything they would buy, like the, you know, the sort of the Peter David and and that sort of stuff. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like a, a writer where I like Peter David is someone I could trust on any book. Any book he writes, I know I'm going to read it and it's going to be good. Now, like where I stuck with it most was Spider-Man 2099, but a lot of people are Hulk fans or Aquaman fans or Supergirl fans or whatever it was, you know, in this period. So uh, speaking of which, Peter David has a GoFundMe going on right now, guys. He uh, is in the hospital as of this recording. So hopefully things have worked out at this point uh, for him. But uh, yeah, we're wishing him all the best. Saw that. That's very sad. Yeah, that was that was rough. But, you know, uh, Peter David, actually, we were just talking about it last issue because he had an interview that was full of fantastic quotes and it mentioned all his film work. I'm curious to find out uh, if there's any mention of stuff he was working on here as we get into Heroes in Motion. Now, Marvel movie news is all the rage as Brian Singer is officially announced as the director of the live action X-Men film from 20th Century Fox. It's just it's weird to me. Like this is 1997, three years before the movie comes out. I know that's definitely how long a big movie like that is going to take. And it was in development longer, but it just feels crazy to me. It's like, yes, the director was there for three years trying to get it made. 2000 seems like a different universe from 1997, you know, but says the now disgraced filmmaker quote this will not be a comic book style film for the x-men or an ensemble of anti-heroes and we figured out a way to make the whole story accessible to fans and non-fans alike when quotes like that happen it's like we're making it accessible to everybody i'm always like "Mm, i'm the comic fan give me what i want yeah and (laughs) this is like at a point when comic books were still a dirty word right for movies and man i i just wanted them them to you know bring the the x-men the animated series into live action that's all i really wanted (laughs) yeah the black still haven't suits. done it so that's no, what we I have know. to wait we're one step closer with what we got in the last dr strange movie but even there. that there's just a tease 
Uh, now, also announced is the first movie for Marvel Studios, which should have been produced back in the day, Captain America. Now, this is from the screenwriter of Sylvester Stallone, Flooded Tunnel Movie, Daylight, and Pierce Brosnan's volcano epic, Dante's Peak. He is being teamed up with one of the writers of The Addams Family and Beetlejuice, Larry Wilson. Quote, it's a pairing of classic action writer with quirky character writer. Yeah, if you say so, because I guess that didn't work out. <laughs> we never saw this movie or this script. No, I would like no. to read that script. <laughs> yeah, what was that like? Meanwhile, Joe Johnston, who would go on to direct the Captain America movie when it was finally made 14 years later, is signed on to direct The Incredible Hulk, if you can believe that. Now, Wizard reports... This is the most important thing here, that Nicolas Cage is interested in playing Tony Stark Iron Man in a live-action film being written by Jeff Vintar, who would eventually go on to write iRobot and not much else. So, Richie, as we discussed, you worked on the Iron Man film that was eventually made. How do you think a Nick Cage as Tony Stark-led film would have turned out if the studio didn't okay Robert Downey Jr.? <laughs> so, so Nick Cage, especially at that time, like, he, he was doing fantastic work. He, I mean, he was, this was like really the, the height of Nick Cage before he became so Nick Cagey. Uh, <laughs> I still cannot see him as, as Tony Stark. I, I guess like maybe like the, if they went with like the hard drinking angle or they really made it a little grittier, but I just, I could picture him as the villain in an Iron Man movie. Yeah. Like I think he would hit that, but no, I cannot, I know I mean, just Jr. think was... about it where, where <laughs> his career was going at this point because like he's he's talking I want to play Tony Stark he ends up instead uh, getting cast as Kal-El in the Superman movie that never happens and finally has to settle for Ghost Rider you know but it's just like it's kind of crazy like he was always chasing superheroes and you gotta love that about the guy can I just we... say though you guys 97 was peak cage you got I, I said that and face off <laughs> in that same summer no yeah. I know but it's like if anyone could have pulled it off i'm gonna give it to cage <laughs> come on T tony stark and then you know superman i feel like we dodged more bullets with nick cage almost being superheroes than he dodged in face off oh there you I go i would i would i would have loved either I, I'm but, just imagining, you know, because of course we have you have the famous Wicker Man meme nowadays. The bees, the bees. So I'm imagining a scene where he was in space. He's re-entering the atmosphere. I'm burning up. I'm burning up. <laughs> it would have been great. Great cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Can we not ignore the fact that it seems like all of this movie news, they're just pulling off of like random people on an AOL message board. None of this <laughs> seems like it was any reality whatsoever. Well, it's that in like the back of Starlog because Starlog always had that full page of tiny, tiny text saying this is going to mm -hmm. get made with this person. So, yeah. Richie, uh, now one of my favorite things to do when you are working on these movies <laughs> was to pester you for any information you could give me. Was there any like thing that happened during the pre-production of Iron Man that we maybe don't know about, like like almost, you know, near casting, near villains that you can now reveal? I just love this stuff. Well, <laughs> I uh, I'm not sure what I'm allowed to say and not allowed to say. I did love like how they were trying to be secretive uh, on the movie, but it was so obvious. Like Nick Fury was not written in the script. It was written as the doctor approaches him. The doctor has an eye patch and a long trench coat. And it's like, 
Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Nick Fury. But and then like we would get pages like that, which you know you, everyone's like, let's make believe we don't know what this means. And then they would take those pages away and replace them with like a new scene where like War Machine put on the armor, and then they would like switch that up. They were being very secretive. One thing that didn't make it to filming that I I love the idea was a certain villain went to get one of his rings back, but it was wow. never never filmed i don't know if it made it you know what stage that made it to in the thing but that was something i had heard while we were on set but it never came to fruitation it would have changed later on what the 10 rings yeah ended up as that would be awesome. but there's that ring that's seen throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. that ends up with jeff bridges character when he you know when he has his fall so there was a rumor on set that a character would be seen getting that back. Now, were there... You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. (laughs) And you were the the guard of the armor. So the question is, do you remember a mishap with the armor? Did it ever fall apart? Or did somebody accidentally lean on it and knock it over when you you turned around to take a drink or something? (laughs) No, no, nothing. That, that, like... So the Stan Winston Studios created the armor and it was just a work of art. And, uh... (laughs) <laughs> there, there was one time that I had the helmet or I, I may have had the helmet and I may have like sort of <laughs> slightly put it on and whispered to myself, I am Iron Man, and then quickly took it off with no one in I, you know, uh, in, in sight. I can't confirm or deny that happened, but. Well, you know, we have another man in armor <laughs> to talk about here. Oh, so, good segue. <laughs> so I recently defended the Shaquille O'Neal movie Steel during the Wizard Superhero Fantasy Draft and. Wouldn't you know it, they have an interview with the writer-director of the film, Kenneth Johnson, who also created the original The Incredible Hulk TV series. It's reported that Shaq only had 51 days to shoot the film in between commitments to his NBA career. As Johnson explains, that's part of the reason the picture got made so fast, revealing that he wrote the story in three weeks and completed the script in two weeks. Johnson's take on the John Henry Irons character may explain why it didn't turn out the way comic book fans would have hoped, despite the fact that it had 215 special visual effects. Wizard Wizard explains that Johnson was wary of O'Neill looking silly in the armor. Johnson removed the cape and exposed O'Neill's eyes and lower parts of his face. Says Johnson, the armor has a deliberate lower tech look, sort of like Robocop meets the Tin Man. All of O'Neill's scenes of steel were filmed at night. A seven foot three guy walking the street in a suit of armor in broad daylight? I don't think so. Uh, did Johnson just get lucky with the Incredible Hulk, or do you think that given more time, Steel could have turned out better? First of all, he did not get lucky with the Incredible Hulk. He was very skillfully crafting. Like that Incredible Hulk TV movie pilot is still one of my favorite Marvel movies. He has the goods. Get lucky with the Incredible Hulk. Uh, well, I'm just, I'm just saying, like, but beyond that, like, obviously they were coming to him because he had had success with it. So I'm not saying that he dropped the ball or anything, but obviously Steel, he didn't have a lot of time to put it together. Do you think there was any version of that, given what he is telling us here, where he would have made it even half as cool as the comic book? Because to me, he literally stripped everything about the character that was awesome in the comics. And then he's just like, yeah, we're going to show Shaq's face so he looks ridiculous. And we're going to shoot him at night because we know he looks ridiculous. Richie, can you talk about Steel? Your feelings? I, I, I can. Uh, okay, so <laughs> John Henry Irons is one of my favorite DC characters. And, uh, you know, you defended the movie, but I, I have to take the opposing view. 
where Steel falls into this sub genre of superhero comics where you're trying to use the a really good supporting character for a bigger hero without mentioning the bigger hero or having them in the story. And it just it hurts the movies. You know, it, it this <laughs> Catwoman Supergirl, this is like these movies that would be better off if you paired them up with the character or at least, you know, like at least Supergirl mentioned Superman. This, I mean, it, it just, it didn't work because you took, they, they took the soul out of it. So like you could have 215 special visual effects that doesn't say they're good special, you know, special effects uh, or not, but like you have to have the heart of the story and they just didn't get the character. I, I would have been okay with like, a rough handmade suit of armor if the story was there, if it had, you know, if it had the soul of the comic character in it, but it just really, it it didn't. Yeah, to me, honestly, you could have fixed it. Let him be inspired by Superman. That was the big selling point. Shaq has a Superman shield tattoo. He loves Superman, and then there's no mention of Superman. Even if they didn't want to set it in the DC universe proper, obviously, Batman and Robin mentioned Superman and all of that, so it, it sort of existed. But what if he was just a guy who was watching the Donner Superman film and was inspired by the character so it's even you know outside the universe but the Superman movie exists like do something give it to us because otherwise it's just like you've lost out on marketing potential and just everything else so yeah and I gotta tell you this guys though so recently well not recently I think it was like two years ago now but I picked up a CD of the Steel soundtrack I just put in the CD without looking and I was like wow there's a lot of cussing on the Steel soundtrack soundtrack i wasn't expecting this This is some dirty rap what is this and it was an old dirty bastard album and i was like oh and then like inside the lighter notes i was i was unfolding and it had a card for a guy that worked for the boston celtics and there was a sticker on the on the case this was played at boston celtics games as near as i could tell and i so desperately want to call that number and try to return the cd and just see what they say that's uh that's quite the story but hey you know what that's a, it's still a great movie so <laughs> you guys have on. either of you watched the uh superman and lois series because i i really like the the steel that they <laughs> they have there they they take it in a completely different direction oh. but it still feels like the character that's wild yeah i had no idea well wow, i only watched the first like three episodes so oh spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> now i know it's drawing me back it's bringing me back but you guys it's explained also in this uh, article that steel had a tie-in action figure line from kenner because you had to do it uh, there's a ton of other action figure news in this issue so it's time we get into some merch madness <laughs> Model Citizen is an interview with sculptor Randy Bowen, who in uh, these years had become very popular for his renditions of uh, popular comic heroes. In addition to a visual breakdown of the sculpting process, Bowen explains his origins. My uh, father was a shoe cobbler who had all these great grinders and tools. I spent a lot of time after school in his store making things with my hands. Of his fame in the sculpting biz, Bowen says, I think I'm best known for my dynamic poses and the feeling of movement I give to my fingers. 
fingers. Thawin explains that the process of making a figure starts with a sketch from the artist, then a metal selection that I produced with the body is built over, followed by a separate sculpted pieces of armor and weapons before the final paint job is applied. Uh, interestingly, it's revealed that he would uh, send the client two different videotapes showing the process and progress of the statue. I'm intrigued. I The, the amount of work that goes into building these statues is just... It's it's like mind blowing to me just how they look. Uh, do either of you collect statues? Are you into that? I never did actually. Yeah, they I was very happy expensive. with the figures. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I could spend five ninety nine, you know, on an action figure that's getting a better sculpt than it used to, and, or I could spend yeah three hundred dollars on a statue on a bust of some character. Yeah, the price is always the issue. Yeah. Well, one of my prized items growing up is I think somewhere in between a, a toy and and a statue where one of my mom's good friends was dating one of the artists that puts together the prototypes for the toys. Whoa. And my mom had told her friend how much of a fan I was. So for a gift, she got one of the, the prototypes and it, it's like it, it doesn't move or anything. It's It's almost like a statue version of one of the toys done in like clay and hardened and it's really cool it was it was on like my shelf with like all my <laughs> prize comic toys and Wait, issues what, what character was it it was spider-man and he was oh. in like just the like the like iconic pose it's it's still in storage somewhere but he had an accidental fall as happens in any oh, no. you know teenager's room and i had to I think I think it was two fingers I had to glue back on. <laughs> but oh. it, it was still it was just like a, such a cool thing. But it like had that statue vibe, but was like one of the toys. Talking about prototypes, this is I mean, it sounds like Richie's house was the place to be back in the day. I mean, you want yeah. to go to Richie's house, but the coolest action figure news in this issue appears on the first two pages of the magazine because Toy Biz is offering, quote, a once-in-a-lifetime chance to own handmade hand-painted prototype models of the Marvel action figures they had been producing all throughout the 90s. So as you as you were telling us, these were like twice the size of the mass-produced figures. They're very nicely painted, very detailed. And they were they, in this case, they're describing them as models that were used at trade shows and catalogs to promote the toys. I'm wondering if they were also used on the back of the box because those are my favorite shots of when they would show you all the figures that were available. Interesting to this process, though, is you had to call all in and bid on the prototypes, which were in three value tiers. So starting at the $2,000 tier, you know, is the most expensive. They had the original Invisible Woman and Silver Surfer, plus a 14-inch Galactus, uh, among others, like the original Iceman figure, like the translucent Iceman. Uh, and then at the, starting at $1,500, there were X-Men favorites like Rogue, Beast, Phoenix, and lots of others like Kingpin and Green Goblin. Like, I would have loved to have the Rogue prototype. I can't imagine that and then in the lowest tier at a thousand dollars were cyclops 2 that's like the classic jim lee outfit cyclops gambit omega red and just plenty of others so many others we'll post this to social media so you guys can see it but i mean you got it as a gift but here if you had a deep pocket you could buy them as well so which guys would you want to go back uh and bid on if you had just you know some disposable income wait you're telling me i could have sold that spider-man for two thousand dollars in 1997 well, money i, I would have been one they say web shooter spider-man and so i'm wondering like is that the one you had this this is blowing my mind how did i miss this article back in the day i, I would have been on the corner like hey anyone want to buy a spider-man prototype yeah 
Uh, you I know, mean, why I, is Cyclops the, the the most affordable one? Yeah, it's that like, is that crazy. That was a, that was a yeah. hot figure. Uh huh. And, and Omega I, Red, that was the one everyone wanted. I would have picked the Iceman prototype because I remember being like so into that Iceman figure on the back yeah. of the box, and like it had like red lighting, so it made it seem like he had red inside of him, but it was just the background. <laughs> it's a great figure. Yeah, I, I think I would have went with Rogue. It's hard, it's hard to argue because I remember searching for Rogue. I had to go like all over the city. Finally, ended up at a comic book shop that my sister's friend owned. So I was just like, "Wow, can't believe you have Rogue!" But speaking of other X Men figures of the time, Stephen, why don't you tell us about the what they were promoting here? An action figure spotlight is given to the new X-Men figures from Toy Biz, but maybe somebody could have dropped the curtain on these ridiculous pieces of plastic. First, the mutant monster line adds snap-on armor to Marvel's mutants that turn Rogue into a dragon goblin lady, Cyclops into an eyeball creature, Mr. Sinister into a David Cronenberg body horror melding of man and machine, Mystique into Sonic the Hedgehog's evil stepmother, and Wolverine into the Zuni fetish doll from Trilogy of Terror. I just watched it over Halloween. <laughs> Luckily, the figures look pretty awesome without their monster get-ups, except for Wolverine, who is a roided out mess. Is that? Yeah, I mean, he's just all, he's I did not write super that. extra. Yeah, this is all me. Um <laughs> But I mean, he's got, he's got like a 12 pack and his, his costume's all tattered. He looks mutated outside of the armor they want to put on him. But do you guys remember these as no. they were adding armor to these characters? No, I have one of them back back in my really? old oh. closet, but I, I don't remember the majority of them. That's yeah. I mean, just, I think it's, it's a always forgettable line and otherwise mm-hmm. fantastic. Well, line. And, and that, but that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like if they should they show a figure out of the snap on armor and they're great sculpts they like they actually look really cool so it's kind of a shame they were covering them up <laughs> uh, and, and the, we... the figure i have i think i, I have the rogue oh, but yeah. i don't have the the goblin thing so i wonder if i just bought the figure itself at like a convention or okay. at the store like a used one mm-hmm. that just didn't have that other mess that's the way to go if you ask me <laughs> uh but as we close out here there's an ad for the next toy fair special which included an offer for an exclusive kitty pride figure and speaking of Toy Fair, I do want to mention that we are going to be doing a Toy Fair special for the holidays. It's the season of toys, right? But speaking of which, last issue's Action Figure Price Guide, this one as well, has the pictures of the figures with the funny captions. So this is like the first appearance of that in 1997, which of course had become a staple of the Toy Fair Price Guide and expanded on to be the Twisted Toy Fair Theater. So very big, very popular with the fans. But let's uh, talk about some other guys who are still pretty popular with the fans we are gonna rev up jim and todd's hype machine So, Richie, there's a, a letter in the Magic Words section that we jumped over because somebody was asking a question about Todd McFarlane. And I'm, I'm going to read it as it's written because I, I like their little introduction. <laughs> Hello, wizard. How come Todd McFarlane can never be reached for comment? And that comes from Frank Cosell from Stanford, Florida. Uh, the response is, I tried to reach Todd McFarlane for comment, but he could not be reached for comment on why he can never be reached for comment. <laughs> Seriously. I <laughs> oh, love it. I love it. Classic wizard nonsense. Ridiculous. <laughs> Poor Todd. He just uh, wanted to be left alone. Yeah. 
He was the Garbo of comics. Speaking of Todd, McFarlane Toys is promoting their new Monsters line of Diorama, two action figure sets featuring Dracula, the Werewolf. Don't you mean the Wolfman? Well, they called it the Werewolf. So the Werewolf? Yeah. The Wolfman. Sure. <laughs> the Hunchback and Frankenstein's Monster, but also features a full page horizontal ad sporting the tagline, We try our best to make our best. Kind of a give me a break message, don't you think? It doesn't seem like that. It's like, yeah, we're, we try our best. You know, <laughs> seems like a very Todd McFarlane thing to say, doesn't it? It's like, hey, we're, we're trying, we're trying. But I'm curious for you guys, we were talking a lot about action figures. Did you buy McFarlane toys? Like, did they appeal to you or were you sticking with characters maybe you were more familiar with? I like the McFarlane toys. I had Spawn. I think I bought the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, cool. Possibly from this line. But uh, like the the movie Maniacs was a huge thing for my friends. I never bought them because they were so expensive. Uh, I wanted. I, I love those. Yeah, they those, are those, amazing. They're really well done. Like, and I remember the, the Evil Dead Ash one being a huge deal, and I almost bought it, but I did not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I I had that one in my childhood closet, but I think my brother actually took it when he moved to Florida. So I think he has that, the Jason Voorhees one, uh, the yeah. Scream one. I, I had I had to get every monster. I I was a huge huge fan of horror movies, and I I, I still am. But when those were just like breathtaking toys like they were amazing yeah i mean like the sculpting just got better and better and the ideas behind them got crazier and crazier you know aside from the licensed (laughs) ones like the ones in the spawn line you're just like what are we doing here like who are these creatures yeah uh now on the jim lee side of things wildstorm unveils its first online comic book is the announcement of a partnership with gte entertainment and jim lee's studio to create siege which was quote originally designed to both a CD-ROM game and a comic book that can be read and played independently. Siege will offer a more comprehensive experience through using both versions. Now, it's revealed that Wildstorm will post one page of the comic to their website every weekday in January 1997, leading up to the game's release in the summer. Now, our recent guest on The Wizard Files, a Wildstorm employee, in fact, the VP of Marketing, uh, Jeff Marriott, elaborates, quote, The internet is going to be a crucial part of this game. Players will be able to download new characters characters after they're introduced to the comic and add them to their gameplay. Now, I gotta tell you, as someone who was buying Gen 13 every month, I remember seeing the ad for Siege on the back or inside cover just nonstop. I mean, so much I was deluged. I bought the first issue and I was just like, "Mm, not for me, but I had no idea that there was like this synergy, like, oh, it's a comic book. It's a video game. I didn't read the fine print, you know, (laughs) like I wasn't trying to figure out what it was all about. I was like, oh, new characters. But the comic book was published. It lasted for several issues. But the game, as far as I can tell, did not materialize. There's no record on the internet that I can find. You geeks out there who are better at uh, detective work, tell me if there's a CD-ROM game you can find from 1997 called Siege, because I've seen a lot, but they're all like fantasy warrior type games like or like some military ones. So I did go on the Wayback Machine to the Wildstorm.com website, and there is a little tag for January that says Siege Preview, but I don't know if that's pages of the comic or a gameplay clip or what. So just in general, either this idea of comic books and games melding together or just PC gaming at all, like were you guys big into that? I played, you know, Doom, Duke Nukem, (laughs) 
<laughs> Star Wars Dark Forces, but I always felt like my computer was never good enough, and like I would get, mm-hmm. I could, I could play like one level, and then it would just not work anymore. <laughs> well, the point and click games were fun, like the Return to Monkey Island, or I have this, I remember having this detective game about the Titanic that I cannot remember much about, except you had to find who like stole something or killed someone on the Titanic before it sunk. <laughs> that's uh, that's something. What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I had like i had like wing Commander i never beat four. it did, you, did oh. you play the wing commander games i mostly Mark just like that one yes and i mostly okay. just like like the movie clips i didn't really care about the gameplay i just wanted to watch like the pc movies yeah. so it was like mark hamill and malcolm mcdowell i was like this is a great cast <laughs> My my brother was always like cutting edge, like top computers, all that stuff since the 80s. Like that was just his thing. And so like I would go to his house and I would play all the games. I barely had, you know, I had like Wolfenstein 3D demo disc, you know, like that's yeah. what I had at home. But I remember like Command and Conquer was a big one because I liked playing Lemmings. And then he's like, look at this one. You can shoot stuff. I'm like, whoa. So like that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, I, I never got heavy into gaming, even on consoles, which, you know, Jim Lee didn't have a lot of success success there was a gen 13 game that they were promoting and then that never materialized he had his wildcats game that came out for the super nes but i don't think anybody really bought that so uh it's unfortunate but getting down to the game at hand here so we have had an exciting breakthrough last issue. Jim Lee finally surpassed Todd McFarlane in our tally. Just so you know, Richie, since the beginning, we have been tallying how many times Todd McFarlane has been mentioned and Jim Lee. So now it continues. In this issue, Todd mentioned just three times, Jim five times. So he is staying in the lead, which hits the 400 mark for Jim Lee. Todd McFarlane down at 393 mentions. But not only has Todd been surpassed in his representation, Presentation in the magazine, but it has to be mentioned that as of issue 67, Todd McFarland has officially disappeared from the top 10 artists ranking list, which really, if you look at it, it should be the top 10 pencilers lists because he was number one for the majority of this first six years of Wizard Magazine. And now the fact that he just disappeared, he's not even in the running because he's just inking and writing the books. So that doesn't count. That's what I find is so strange. It's like, he's just a tracer. We don't need him on our, I mean, and also he was in mogul mode, right? You know, he's making toys. He's doing cable TV. He's doing movies. He's a busy guy, busy guy. So that was just a, a big, development for wizard history in that regard but yeah guys wow uh this has been a really fun episode i mean thank you for your insights especially richie those stories i mean uh, anything else coming to mind for you as we close out well first can i say quite the milestone for jim lee to be staying <laughs> up <laughs> up at the that 400 mark yeah i i, I wanted i wanted to uh to to show one thing though, because you, yeah. you mentioned the uh the Gen 13 a lot in the podcast. Yes. So I am a big fan of Gen 13 as well. So when I was back at home last, I got two key issues that I just wanted to bring while I was on here with you. We got number one and this probably my favorite cover, number twelve. Yeah, they made a t-shirt of that one. I just saw but, the first uh, issue of the mini series <laughs> at a comic book store today. It was selling for only $12. And I was like, think about back at this time in 1997, it was selling for like 50 or something at conventions, you know? If you ever have, you know, another, like a, a Gen 13 special that you want me on, I am there. 
Oh, dude, I because yeah, I have I have a full run of like that first, you know, all the J. Scott Campbell stuff. So yeah, we need to talk. So I will definitely <laughs> be in touch. There's a Wild Storm special coming up eventually. Plus, I'll just mention it here. We have our Jim Lee tribute Zoom event that is happening. So that is actually as of this recording happening the next day. So we're we're excited about that. All right, but uh, thank you again, uh, Stephen and Richie, for joining me to talk about this issue. Uh, like I say, just wonderful to go back in time and get new perspectives and just to catch up with old friends steven there and you guys catch it up as well so why don't you tell us uh, what's coming up for you richie what are you working on these days or where can people find you online to stay informed Awesome. Yeah. So uh, as as Stephen mentioned uh, before, my feature film, a horror movie called The Eve, is now back available on Tubi TV, and it's right in time for the holidays. It's actually a horror movie that takes place over uh, New Year's Eve. So uh, we have that that you can watch for free on Tubi. And I'll I just say, feel, I, uh, I've actually watched it. I, I went and checked it out. If you guys have been settling for New Year's Evil, you guys need to update. You need to get this as your New Year's uh, suspense thriller film yeah so it's pretty cool it's it's a slick looking picture thank you and and there's room for both you could do that new year's eve marathon of horror movies (laughs) i also wrote two episodes of uh, a narrative podcast that's called fathom stories it's sort of like alfred hitchcock presents meets the twilight zone all the stories on it are uh fantastic my two episodes are uh jay which is uh based on slasher movies that i absolutely love and flipping that on its head a little bit and honesty is the best policy, which is uh, my take on Scream. They're all standalone stories. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is RS the Pit. Uh, two of my old nicknames just smashed together. And I'm uh, well. You can follow my family's adventures on Instagram at Hello Sweetie Pies. We go to theme parks, uh, cosplay. Uh, yeah, just follow us on our journey. Fantastic. And uh, Steven, where can people find your work? I have nothing to promote. <laughs> you are you are taking UFO Club to festivals. You are I'm doing that. Artists. But like my social media presence is like not really existent <laughs> right now. But yes, UFO Club is doing well. It's it's uh playing at well, as of this recording, it'll be playing on Friday at the Tampa Bay Underground Film Festival, where it's nominated for four Buffy Awards. Hey. So so where, where can we find out more info on UFO Club that I may be or may not be in voice? <laughs> Richie does some voice uh, acting work. In, As uh, do I. Yes, you're both voice actors in it. And Richie's brother so, designed the poster, which I love and hangs in my living room. So where can we find more info? On oh, UFO where can you find more? Oh, at ufoclubfilm.com. <laughs> I'm going to go there right after we finish recording and check Thanks it all for, out. That's how it works. And Thanks that's... for selling me, Richie. <laughs> Also, I always got your back. <laughs> it should be mentioned, if any of you out there are listening to The Monkees, know that Steven is probably also listening to that same song at that exact moment. He's in the Monkees mode. I've been in a real Monkees mood these last few months. <laughs> and of course, if you want to stay in touch with us, you know where to find us. We're on Twitter at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. If you want to check out our archive of over 180 podcasts, go ahead and check us out at WizardsComics.com. Have you subscribed to the youtube channel i feel like a broken record wizards podcast get over there i got all sorts of haul videos everything that's being added to the archives we are having so much fun uh and i want you to be a part of it on 
Patreon. That's right, Wizards, the Patreon Guide to Comics is back. Five bucks a month, you're getting episodes two weeks early, videos early, all sorts of exclusive content. So we want you over there just joining in, getting behind the scenes with Wizards. But if you join our Patreon, the other perk is that you get a shout out every episode. So let's get it started. Rev it up. It might sound counterintuitive, but if you want to be the coolest guy around, you gotta join up with this gang of geeks. Coming out first and leading the pack, it's the OG original geek, yes, the first ever patron, Mark McDonald, looking good. And right behind him there, we got Stephen Forshaw, ooh, Stephen, yeah man, cool shades. Oh, right behind him we have, wait, it's not Stan Lee, it's not Jim Lee, it's not even Jay Lee, no, it's Lee Markowitz, ooh, rocking it up on Patreon. Of course, we also have Mitchell Hall, yeah, Mitchell Hall, and Nikki and Jason from the Retro Network, ooh, they've got all access on Patreon. So that is the crew. You want to join the list? Get on Patreon. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.